dear fellow redeemed. We consider especially our gospel lesson from the gospel of Mark chapter 1. And per the normal, Mark doesn't tell us a whole lot of detail about what Jesus said. He doesn't give us all the details of what did Jesus preach on, did he have a theme in parts that day, what was his illustration or his application, just that Jesus went to Capernaum, and there on the Sabbath day, he went to preach. And the way this would normally work, Saturday morning, their normal day of worship, the Sabbath day, Saturday morning, everybody would gather together and, uh, and come for the synagogue service, which is remarkably similar to ours because our service is actually based on their synagogue service. Beginning with a confession of sins, a statement of faith, readings from God's word. And then when it comes time to preach, whoever is preaching that day, whether the synagogue leader, like what we would think of as the, um, the councilman or the, uh, the chairman of the congregation, the synagogue leader would stand up and read from God's word, and then he would sit down on a chair at the front to preach to teach. Unless there was a traveling rabbi or a traveling teacher, in which case that person might be invited to speak. You see that a number of times in, in the book of Acts. As Paul goes around and he is invited to speak, brothers, if you have a word of encouragement, come and speak, they would say. And so Jesus stands up and he is preaching and he is talking. We don't have a whole lot about what he said, just the reaction of the people. And we're, we're familiar with this, the way Mark tells it. We're familiar with it, that Mark basically does the exact same thing that a good movie director will do. Especially when we're talking about like a, a horror movie or a thriller of some sort. That it is terrifying enough if you see the monster, but if you just see the reaction of the people, that builds the suspense over time. The same way Mark tells us the reaction of the people he doesn't give us the exact words of authority that Jesus speaks, but he gives us the reaction that the people are shocked. Who is this? What is this? What sort of teaching is this? He's teaching with authority, meaning he's teaching with the authority of the word of God. And practically speaking, the way it sounds is that he is taking a stance to say, here's what is right and here's what is wrong according to the word of God. And he is not budging or equivocating. And it's all well and good, everything is going well, until somebody from the, from the back or maybe from the front pipes up. What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, I suppose if, um, if a man serves as a pastor long enough, he'll have experiences like this. It sometimes happens where somebody walks in and... Um, maybe is a little bit delusional about what's going on or how the church service is supposed to work. And, um, and then they cry out something strange, something out of the ordinary. It doesn't happen too often. I think the last time it happened in my experience was in St. Paul, Ottawa. So about a decade ago. But you could imagine. You could imagine you're sitting there and pastor is just getting to, um, to the illustration in the sermon and then somebody stands up and Mark tells us that he has an unclean spirit. He has an unclean spirit. This isn't mental illness. This isn't um, some other diagnosis that can be done away with medication. He has an unclean spirit, which is to say that this person 
has come to hear Jesus, and that this person is, to some degree, possessed by a demon. And if that doesn't make you uncomfortable, I don't know what would. Because we don't talk about demons a whole lot. Except in metaphor. Well, you know, my uncle is, he's a good guy, but he's got his demons. He's got his own battles to fight. We talk about it metaphorically. As though these demons are just like spooky things in our minds. But that you'll notice that the Bible talks about demons and deals with demons in a very real way. And it's not just primitive, backwards, biblical history, as some would assert. But God gives us a peek into the spirit world. A peek enough to say that there's more going on here than you or I would know, you or I would realize. And from what we know from Scripture, is that these, these angels, the angels were created someday during the seven days of creation, and then sometime after the seven days of creation, a portion of them, up to a third from the book of Revelation, a portion of them rebelled against God, and God, in his justice, kicked them out of heaven, and it made it impossible for them to repent. The amazing thing is that sometime shortly after that, when Adam and Eve fall into sin, God didn't kick them to hell and make it impossible for them to repent. God promised his son. And ever since, ever since the pages of Scripture give us an insight into the spiritual battle that goes on, the spiritual battle that is unseen, the spiritual battle that thankfully is usually hidden from our sight, the spiritual battle that we know very little about, aside from the clear words of God, and we, in our modern era, simply say, well, maybe it was something medical that, that we can just explain away, as if that is reassuring. <clears throat> this man with the unclean spirit stands up, and he's not crazy. He's not crazy, he's not delusional, he's not muttering to himself. He stands up, I know who you are, and why are you here? kind of runs through the congregation. <laughs> They're like, oh boy, uh, he came today. Great. <laughs> the chill runs through the congregation. What is Jesus going to do? This man who has authority, this man who has authority and the teachers of the law, they have done their worst and now they just try to ignore him and they walk away and they say, well, not today, not now, not here, maybe another time and um, go do your best and good luck. Amen. See you later. But now Jesus is here. Jesus, this rabbi from Nazareth, Jesus, at the very beginning of his, um, of his ministry, he hasn't even made it to his own hometown of Nazareth to preach yet. He's here in Capernaum. He's been hanging out at, uh, at Peter's house. And he's going to church, and the chairman of the congregation says, could you say a few words? And the battleground is set. We would be deluded if we thought the battle were simply between demon and Jesus. Because that's the battle. But the battleground is all around us. The battleground is the human heart. The battleground is the human heart where in your heart God has created faith. And at the same time, as we talked about last week, we are 100% sinner, 100% saint. 
at the same time, and I know the math doesn't add up, but it does. The battleground is the human heart, and arrayed against us are the unseen forces of evil, those who would do their best to deprive us of a moment of peace, those who would do their best to deprive you of any blessing from your God. And not just them, not just the demons that we can't see, but the temptations of the world around us and their ally within the human heart that is the sinful nature or the sinful flesh. And so the battleground is set. The battleground is the hearts of the people here in the synagogue, and Jesus has already faced down the temptation of the devil those 40 days in the wilderness, but now here is one of those devil's cohorts. What do you want with us? Why are you here? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. And you would think, you would think, because humans are so impressed and sometimes enamored and sometimes terrified of, of demons and spiritual talk and things like that, demons and angels and um, the exorcist, fill in the blank. It's the kind of ideas that just grab our imagination to say, wow, there must be more going on here. And you would think, Jesus has a prime opportunity. He's got somebody who is um, who's willing to testify all that Jesus has been doing since the days of creation. He's got one who's willing to testify of, of God's grace there at the tree. He's got one who would stand up and say, yes, God completely crushed his enemies when the people crossed the Red Sea. And Jesus responds, not by saying, good, why don't you start telling them that you don't have a choice. You tell them what I've done. You tell them the authority that I have. You tell them the power that I have. And all of a sudden, he's got this prime opportunity to have a mouthpiece, a spokesperson, who would say that this Jesus of Nazareth is no unassuming rabbi whose words can be dismissed with the rest of the rabble. This Jesus is the one to whom you need to listen. But he doesn't do that. Be quiet. Consistently, consistently, whenever the demons fall on their knees before him saying, don't torture us, don't kill us, don't send us into the abyss, all these silly things, crazy things, and I'm glad I'm not there. But whenever Jesus encounters any of these demons, the very first thing that he says is, be quiet. He doesn't permit them to speak. He doesn't permit them to talk. He doesn't want them to testify to who he is. Why? Well, he doesn't need it. And he doesn't want their testimony. He doesn't want the, the mere testimony of, of fear and terror. He doesn't want the mere testimony of those who are terrified by his power. He doesn't need the testimony of those who are opposed to him. As if um, you know, some foreign dictator is all of a sudden praising the government of our United States. You don't need that guy speaking up to say we're doing a good thing. What does he really want? Jesus doesn't need the demons to speak up for him. So he says, be quiet. The Son of God doesn't want to make his glory known in his power and in the fact that he can terrorize those demons. He doesn't want to simply flex his authority over them. He wants to be known and reveal himself as the God of grace. 
for you. So Jesus doesn't need their testimony. He doesn't need demonic testimony, but maybe we do. That's the uncomfortable part. Maybe we do, just a little bit. Because it is simple enough, easy enough to find um, mental ways to try to dismiss what Jesus says. It is simple enough to find a way to say, you know what, Jesus didn't actually mean that, and those words don't apply to me, and besides, I can do what I want because Jesus has forgiven me, and besides, um, on top of all that, that doesn't sound loving, and this is what I want to do anyway. And what is that? Whichever one you choose, or all of them. What is that except a dismissing of the authority of Jesus? Saying that he doesn't have the right to speak into my life and my wants and my wishes, my desires, my emotions, and what I want to do. Jesus doesn't have the right to overrule my reason, my rationality, my wishes, and my wants. Jesus, I, I, I really appreciate, I love that fact, you know, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, whew, awesome. But this is my life. I've only got 20, 30, 40 years to do what I want. I'll get to what you want later. And the authority of Jesus is pushed to the side. The authority of Jesus is pushed to the side because, well, he's not really my God. Maybe that's your experience, too. I know it's mine. Maybe that's your experience. And, um, and then it is so easy, following that up, to look at the gifts Christ freely gives and say, well, here it is. I've got all these gifts that he lays out for me, and all I have to do is just come and enjoy them, and then I can just go on my way. As long as I show up every now and then, and I've got all these gospel truths, Yes, Jesus, he died, he rose, awesome. He freely distributes his body and blood underneath the bread and the wine for the forgiveness of sins. Great. And finally, <laughs> I can feel better about myself as I go back to what I want. Because the battleground, the battleground isn't heaven. The devil's already been kicked out of heaven, and he's not allowed back in, at least not in the same way. We'll talk about the book of Job another time. But the devil has been kicked out of heaven, and he isn't allowed to disrupt the joy, the bliss, the holiness. The battleground isn't heaven. The battleground is your heart. The battleground is the collective hearts of the kingdom of God. The battleground is, is the proclamation of the faith that we share, that this is, yes, a public faith. It is a personal faith, but it is not a private faith. A public faith, we confess these same things as true. A personal faith, these facts, these truths apply to me, but it is not a private faith where we get to pick and choose when and where Jesus would have his word with us. And so the man possessed by the unclean spirit, the demon, speaks up and says, What do you want with us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I don't know about you, but even 
personally, by my own power, I would not be able to arm wrestle well, anybody in this room. Maybe Marilyn, sorry Marilyn. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to arm wrestle anybody in this room and win, um, much, less, much less Satan himself, on my own power. But Jesus, with his authority, stands there, stands here, and says, be quiet. Come out of him. And with that, the evil spirit convulses the man and comes out with a shriek. And the man is free. Do you see the authority of Jesus? To pause for a moment, a minute, to understand that, you know, we are both sinner and saint 100% at the same time. And God has two messages, really three messages for you and for me. We're familiar with them because this is the normal rhythm of the sermon that we begin with the mirror of God's law. We hear the proclamation of forgiveness. And hopefully we hear a portion of God's law for guidance for our lives. So three basic messages that are applied to sinner and saint within each of us. And you do the math, that's like six different things going on back and forth between each one of us. Where the sinner Here's the mirror of God's law says, that isn't me, that isn't now, that doesn't apply to me. And if it was me, then at least I have an excuse. The sinner inside of me hears God's gospel and say, great, now I'm off the hook. The sinner inside of me hears God's law for guidance for my life and says, no, but I don't want to do that. And your God is holding out on you. Did God really say that? No, he didn't mean that. Thanks be to God, because you know what Jesus does? In holy baptism, in all the gifts that Christ freely gives, that he loves to give, he rolls back the kingdom of the devil and reestablishes his own kingdom, that Christ's kingdom comes to you. And with the proclamation of both law and gospel, the saint in your heart, the new life, the actual you, that's who you are now, that you aren't identified by your sinful nature and sinful flesh, but the fact that you are a Christian and the cross of Christ marks your head and your heart. That's who you are, a saint. The saint hears the mirror of God's law and says, yep, totally, that is me, right there. The saint hears the gospel of God's grace and cheers. This is who my Jesus is. This is what my Jesus has done. This is how much my Jesus cares for me individually and personally to flex his might and drive out the devil. And the sinner, or the saint, hears the proclamation of the law as God. And doesn't hear it as condemnation, but with joy. To the heart set free. God's law that says, now this is how you should live. That, that heart hears God's law and says, yes, I'd love to do that. That is exactly it. I want, to, I want to do what I can during my limited time here on earth to honor my God and my Savior with all that I am, all that I have, all that I do, to live according to God's law in such a way that even if he's the only one that sees it, that would be wonderful because I have to find some way to just say thank you. Thank you for buying me back. Thank you for coming into my life with your gospel power to drive out the devil. Thank you for washing me clean from the shame and the guilt of sin. Thank you 
for the clear word that says, you know what, my Christian life and living this Christian life isn't up to me as if I have to get all my courage and all of my effort together. It's not up to me. It's up to Jesus who wants to accomplish his good through me. And do you see how powerful your Jesus is? That he doesn't need, he doesn't want the testimony of demons because he's got yours. He doesn't need and he doesn't want the testimony of demons because he himself wants to speak through you. That he himself wants to do his good work on your heart and shape your life to follow him. And so when Jesus, when Jesus goes to the synagogue at Capernaum, and he's standing there, and the man shouts out, I know who you are, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? And Jesus says, be quiet, I don't need you. He's establishing his own kingdom, and look around, he has. He's establishing his own kingdom, where his proclamation of grace that is God's undeserved love for sinners, you and me. His proclamation of grace establishes a new foothold where the devil once had the power. His proclamation of grace changes hearts and changes lives and gives a promise that this world cannot overpower. That's what we've got today. In just a little bit, we'll have another baptism, uh, the second one this week. Pretty cool, and we've got another one coming up soon. That Jesus doesn't have to stand here with his authority to flex his might and demonstrate his power. But Jesus does the exact same thing and even more. He casts out the devil. He brings his kingdom to that little soul and brings his promises, the same promises for you and for me, that his kingdom has come to you again. That Jesus doesn't want the testimony of demons because he's got yours. Amen.